Heavenly Father, we come and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us and help us to see that your law is good. And so therefore we will beg you to take away the disgrace of our sins. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel. and This falls at a time in Israelite history where there's great change coming amongst the Israelites. Uh, where does it fall? Well, a bit of an overview again uh, for where 1 Samuel occurs. Firstly, of course, the book of Genesis opens with the Bible, with, opens the Bible with the creation of the world. You have the first parents, Adam and Eve, and then from them you get Abraham. From Abraham you get his, his great-grandchildren, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. And then they, of course, end up in Egypt under the slavery, in slavery under Pharaoh. And from Egypt they're taken out by Moses into the wilderness, and then from the wilderness, they're taken by Joshua into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And then they have a series of judges looking after them. And 1 Samuel is coming to the last of these judges. And so what really is the purpose of 1 and 2 Samuel? What are the purposes of this book? Why was this book given to the people of Israel? Why is it given to us today? Why is it important that we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel in our Bibles? Well, one of the big reasons why we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is to defend the Davidic kingship, to defend David's right to the throne. Why would there be any question, though, of David's throne being legitimate? Why would there be any question of its legitimacy? Well, we read in 1 Samuel what occurred in history that David's family wasn't the first to have the throne. It wasn't David's family that was first to have the throne. We had all the judges looking after the people of Israel, and then the first king of Israel was not from David's family. It was not David himself. It was Saul who had the kingship. And he is not from the tribe of Judah at all. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And therefore, couldn't people ask further down the track, as David's family continues to have the throne, couldn't they then ask, well, should the family of David be the ones who reign over Israel? Couldn't it be that Saul's family has been robbed of the throne? And so this is why 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel as well, it's one book originally, why it is so important to have this book, because it shows the legitimacy of David's throne. Repeatedly, again and again, it shows that David's family rightfully has the throne of Israel. In what ways does it show this? Well, if you actually go through the whole book, you can see again and again pretty much every material, piece of material that is contained within the book in some way points to the legitimacy of David's kingship. The book opens with Samuel coming into being, uh, his existence with uh, the prayer of Hannah. And why is Samuel so important, the prophet Samuel? Well, what does Samuel do? Samuel anoints David as king over Israel. And so if Samuel is not a legitimate prophet then that calls into question David's position as a legitimate king. And so we see at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, is very careful to point out that Samuel is a true prophet of God in comparison to the way that Eli's family, Eli and his family, are behaving. And so when we know that Samuel anoints David as king, then it is a true anointing from God himself because Samuel is a true prophet given to the people of God. If you can read, and you can read about that in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. What else do we see in the book of 1 Samuel? Well, we see the moral disasters of King Saul. Again and again, as you go through the book of 1 Samuel, you see again and again how disastrous 
King Saul is as a leader of God's people and how God rejects him as king over Israel. And then how else does 1 Samuel defend the monarchy of David? Well, of course, it shows that David did not usurp the throne. He did not usurp the throne. He did not seize the throne from Saul. Instead, he was righteous in his behaviour again and again towards Saul, who was unrighteous in his behaviour towards David. And so if you've read 1 Samuel, you could never accuse David of hating Saul and stealing the throne from Saul by force. And chapter 24 is a very good example of this in defending King David as the rightful king over Israel. Chapter 24 defends David's peaceful ascent. How? Because we see in chapter 24, which we've just read, that David refused to assassinate King Saul. We see that in verse 7. Verse 7, it says uh, that... Oh, well, we'll go to verse 6. It says, He said, that's David, to his men, as Saul's there in the cave, unaware that David's there, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Because the men in verse 4 had said to him, in verse 4 it says, uh, The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They are wanting him to kill him. But we see that in verse 7, with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. We see that David refused to assassinate King Saul here in the cave. The situation is, as we read before, that Saul is chasing David and David has gone into this cave to hide. Saul comes in to relieve himself. Could be to sleep, probably a euphemism. Uh, It means that his robe was covering his feet that he was toileting, he was going to the toilet inside the cave. And this is a perfect opportunity, while he is very vulnerable, for an assassination to take place. But David refuses to do that. And David is even conscience-stricken about what he did do while Saul was in the cave. What did he do? Well, we read in verse uh, verse 4, sorry. At the end of verse 4, we see the last sentence there says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He cut off this corner of Saul's robe. And then what do we read in verse 5? Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. David refused to assassinate Saul, refused to kill him, thought it was appropriate to cut off a piece of his garment. But then even then, he was conscience-stricken. Why? Well, it's not very nice to damage someone else's clothes, is it? I doubt anyone in the church right now would be pretty pleased if the person next to them got out a knife and chopped a bit of their clothing off. You'd all be a bit disgusted. But there's something more important going on in this, something that we don't get in our cultural context today, particularly when it comes to royalty. Clothes symbolised kingdoms. Royal clothes symbolised kingdoms. And we see this in other parts of 1 Samuel and even in 1 Kings. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 4, we read about the king's son, Jonathan. It says that Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. And when we looked at that passage, we looked at the fact that this demonstrates that Jonathan was saying, you are the rightful heir to the throne by giving his clothes. It wasn't just that he was trying to equip him in some way. He thought he needed some clothing on him. No, he was saying, you are the rightful heir to the throne. 
And we read in 1 Samuel 15, verse 27, as Samuel turned to leave Saul, he was disgusted with the way that Saul had been behaving, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. And so his robe became an illustration of the kingdom of God and how it was torn away from Saul and given to one who is better, which of course is a reference to King David. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, much further on, after Solomon has uh, passed away, we read about that time Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. Here, the cloak was torn into 10 pieces to represent that Jeroboam would rule over Israel. Judah would continue to have David's throne ruling over them, but the rest of Israel would be under the rule of Jeroboam. So what does David symbolise in cutting off a piece of Saul's robe while he is there in the cave? Well, it symbolises David violently stealing part of Saul's kingdom. Not taking the whole kingdom, but part of the kingdom. He is stealing part of Saul's kingdom. But doesn't David have a right to take at least part of the kingdom of Saul and take some, the royal robes or at least part of the royal robes? Hadn't God rejected Saul as king? Hadn't the Holy Spirit, we learn in 1 Samuel, left Saul by this point? And isn't David the Lord's anointed to be the king, to be the Lord's anointed now ruling over Israel? So doesn't David have a right to murder Saul, to take Saul's life and to take his royal robes? The answer is no. David has no right to murder another human being. He has no right to murder another human being and steal his kingdom, especially one who is anointed by God over that kingdom. And if we think about it, if David had murdered Saul in the cave, what would have happened? What would have happened if David that day had listened to his men and murdered Saul while he was in that cave? Well, I think he would have spent a lifetime in caves afterwards. Why? Well, would the Lord have continued to honour David when he had clearly violated one of his commands and murdered his anointed one? The Lord had rejected Saul... For disobeying him, the Lord could reject David if he disobeyed him and took someone's life into his hands and stole his kingdom. And what about the people of Israel when they find out that David had assassinated Saul? Think of the people who loved Saul. There were people who loved Saul in Israel. They loved him as their king. We see the Ziphites, they're quite happy to tell King Saul that David is amongst them and invite Saul to come down and catch David. How do you think they would have felt about David assassinating their king? Do you think they would have rallied to him and said, you are our king now? They would have rejected him. And even the people who didn't like Saul, if they heard, the Israelites heard, that David had assassinated the king while he was toileting. How do you think they would have felt? 
He didn't go to Saul in hand-to-hand combat in front of everybody. No, he went up and basically stabbed him in the back while he was in a very vulnerable position. How do you think the people of Israel would have felt, even those who didn't really like King Saul? How would we feel if one of our politicians, our Prime Minister of Australia, was stabbed in the back by one of his fellow politicians? Not literally, but even metaphorically. Imagine if there was a vote on whether the Prime Minister, by his own party, should be the Prime Minister of Australia, and they had it while he was in the bathroom. He wasn't even there to defend himself or vote for himself. And someone else put themselves forward in the party room and said, I want to be Prime Minister, and, they, and he took over the role. And that guy didn't even have a chance to defend himself. How do you think the people of Australia would feel about that? They'd vote that guy out in the next election, wouldn't they? Even if they didn't really like the guy who was in the bathroom, they would feel that it was wrong that it happened in that way. And so if David had killed Saul in the cave and taken his kingdom, I think he would have spent a lifetime in caves after that. He wouldn't have ascended the throne because he had violated God's commands of do not murder and do not steal. And of course the people would have understood that as well. And so what is chapter 24 clearly showing us? Well, it's showing us that David did not usurp the throne even when he had the opportunity. So how was David going to receive the kingdom? How was he going to be king of Israel? Well, it was by trusting the Lord to give it to him. Not taking it by his own hands, but by taking it from the hand of the Lord as the Lord would give it to him. Now, why is trusting a better way but harder? Well, it means keeping God's law means trusting in the Lord, which then equals obedience and keeping God's law, which means don't murder others and don't steal things that don't belong to you at that time. If it belongs to somebody else, you let that other person have it. It may come to you in due course, but you've got to wait and receive it from the Lord. But why do we want to sin instead? Well, we don't like waiting. We don't like waiting, and sin looks like a shortcut to joy. Sin looks like a shortcut to getting out of the cave. That's what it looked like to Saul, uh, to, to David at the time. As he sees there, Saul there, he thinks, if I could kill him now, I can get out of these caves. And I don't have to hide anymore. And I can get joy much faster. It looks like a shortcut to joy. But it wouldn't have been a shortcut to joy for David. He still had to wait a long time, even after he received uh, even after the death of Saul. We read that in 1 Kings, that it, uh, 2 Samuel, that it took years after the death of Saul for David to become king. And so if he'd killed him then, it would have been, it looked like a shortcut, but it would not have been a shortcut. And waiting is particularly hard when there's lots of suffering. Why is it so hard to do what is right? Because it means waiting. Why is it so hard to wait? Because it means a, a time of suffering. And David had to suffer. He had to suffer for years. He had to continue fleeing from Saul, even lived amongst the Philistines, as we will see, and he continued to fight against his enemies. But why was trusting the Lord the better way for David? Why was it better that David trust the Lord to give him the throne? Well, it meant that his throne was then secure. His throne was secure for him and for his family. Even Saul in chapter 24 Even Saul, of chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, acknowledged that David's throne 
would be the one that would last because it was built on what? On righteousness. You see that at the end of the chapter. Look with me at verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Isn't that your vo- Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. What do we see here in 1 Samuel 24? We see a clear defence of the kingship of David that David ascended the throne righteously by trusting in the Lord. And we see that even Saul recognised that. No one who loved Saul afterwards could say, somehow David stole the throne. Even Saul acknowledged that David's family would be the one that would reign over Israel. But what do we care 3,000 years later? We're so far removed from these events. What do we care 3,000 years later if it's Saul's family who is king of Israel or David's family who is king of Israel? What's it matter to us today? Well, it matters to us because who is king now? It's Christ. Christ is king. And Christ is a prince from the family of David. Christ is a prince from the family of David. So what's the problem if David's throne is illegitimate? Christ's reign would be illegitimate. Christ's reign would be illegitimate. Christ, along with David, would have robbed the descendants of Saul of the kingdom of God. So why should Christ reign? Well, he is a descendant of David's legitimate royal family as 1 Samuel shows. This book is so valuable to us, even 3,000 years later, because the kingdom continues and there is a king on the throne. And we want to make sure that that king is a legitimate king and we know that he is a legitimate king because David is a legitimate king. But why else is Christ the one who reigns? Well, like David in 1 Samuel, Jesus trusted God to get the royal robes. How did Jesus get the throne that he's on now? It is because he trusted in God. What did trusting mean for Jesus? It meant Jesus had to strive against sinful ways to get the throne. To get the royal robes, he had to strive against unrighteousness. Why would sin be so enticing to the Lord Jesus? Well, it means a shortcut, doesn't it, to royal robes. What does waiting mean? Waiting means you have to suffer. You trust God and you have to suffer in the cave of this world. And let's face it, sometimes this world stinks like a toilet. It is horrible to be in this world at times. But that's what Jesus was called to do. He was called to trust and wait, even if it meant suffering. And you say, oh, but was Jesus really tempted to seize the royal robes by sinful, quicker, a sinful and a quicker and a painless way? Yes, he was. How? Well, we read of it before, by worshipping Satan. What did we read in Luke's Gospel? Luke chapter 4, verse 5. 
It says, the devil led him, that is Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. You can be royalty right now if you do what? If you bow down and worship me. And why didn't Jesus take him up on the offer of royal robes simply by worshipping Satan? Many reasons, but the big one is that he trusted God. He trusted God. Jesus answered Satan in Luke 4 verse 8, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Why did Jesus trust God? Well, he knew that Satan's throne wasn't a legitimate throne. It's not a legitimate throne at all over the kingdoms of this world. And so if he bowed down and worshipped Satan, his throne would not be legitimate either. Christ's throne would not be legitimate because he's getting it from someone who is illegitimately on the throne, who is not legally supposed to be there. Why is that a problem, though? Why did Jesus trust God? Because he knew that all illegitimate thrones were the weak, or very, very powerful as Satan's was, they would all be destroyed one day. They would all be destroyed. But you say, was it hard for Jesus to trust God and wait for the throne? The answer is yes. It was the worst suffering that man, a man has ever known that Jesus had to go through as he waited for the throne to be given to him. Christ's trust involved the most suffering a human being has ever known. And what is that? A crucifixion under God's wrath. Crucifixion under God's wrath. But Jesus, what did he do? He trusted God and endured the cross despite the power to call 12 legions of angels to come and save him. He endured the cross and trusted God to give him the throne rather than sinfully taking it by force. And so when we read 1 Samuel 24, let us rejoice at every moment that it shows that Jesus is the true king of the kingdom of God. Whether it's by showing how David's throne is legitimate or by showing how Christ faithfully ascended the throne like his forefather David did. Why rejoice, though? Well, God has now made Christ's throne endure for all eternity. It is a legitimate throne, so it will not be overthrown one day. And so Christ, as the true and righteous and loving and gracious and compassionate king, he has all power and will reign for all of eternity. No one can usurp his throne, and God will not overthrow his throne. The angel's words are true that were spoken to Mary in Luke chapter 1, where the angel said, He, speaking of Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And in case you don't know what forever means, the angel continued with, His kingdom will never end. Why? Because it's a legitimate kingdom. It's a legitimate throne that he is on. It will never end. You may say that's good for Jesus. Why should we rejoice? 
Well, we rejoice because we who trust in God are citizens of that kingdom. And why else should we rejoice? We rejoice because we are more than citizens. What are we? We are royalty. Christ gives us royal clothes. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have kept the faith. I've kept trusting in God. Now there is in store for me, what? The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. A crown of righteousness. A crown is given to all those who long for Christ Jesus and who have kept the faith. And so why do we then rejoice as royalty? Why is it so good to have Christ Jesus as the eternal king and we as his royal family? Well, it's because we will rule over the new creation in joyful peace under Christ as the king. But you ask, unlike Jesus, there's a problem. We've sinned. Jesus never sinned, but we have sinned. How is it possible for rebels to be royalty? How is it possible for us to, who have sinned against God, who have murdered, at least in our minds, who have stolen what does not belong to us, who have lied and cheated and hurt our fellow men, not loved our neighbour as ourselves, and not loved God with all our heart, soul and mind and strength, how can we be royalty and have the royal robes and have a crown of righteousness given to us? After all, what is sin? Sin is attempted murder of the king and stealing his royal robes, like David was tempted. Every time we sin, what are we doing? We're pushing Jesus off the throne and saying, I am king and I tell how my life should be run right now. I don't care what your commands are. I'm doing what I want. I am boss. And why do we do that? Well, we think that sin is a shortcut to kingdom happiness. If I sin right now, I will be happy. I will have that happiness that comes of being king and being part of the kingdom. It's a quick way out of the cave. If I sin right now, I will go into pleasure. But even a little sin is what? It's a cutting off a corner of Christ's robe. Even a little sin, the smallest of sins, is a cutting off of that robe and saying, I will rule this bit. You can rule the other parts of my life, God, but I will rule this bit. And yes, we come up with all kinds of reasons why we should be allowed to sin. What's one of the big ones? It's, well, God has given me the opportunity. God has led me into temptation and has given me the opportunity, so it's okay for me to sin. That's what David's men were trying to encourage David to do. The Lord has given Saul into your hands. You can kill him. It's God's will that you do this. And he says, no, it is not God's will. God's will is not that I murder someone, lift my hand against the Lord's anointed and steal something that does not belong to me. And what happens to Satan and all who follow him trying to take Christ's royal robes, to all who sin against God? Well... Their reigns will end. And what happens when the reign ends? All joy is taken away. All joy is taken away and there is only eternal punishment. If David wouldn't attack Saul, a wicked king, how much more should we suffer for attacking Jesus, the truly righteous king, 
we should all be consigned to a cave in the depths of hell for eternity. For even the smallest sin, the smallest cutting off of Christ's robe. So how can we possibly be royalty? How can we be royalty in spite of our sin? Well, it's by faith. By faith in God. It is the only way to royalty. It's always been the only way to have a crown from God. We see it with David. We see it with Jesus. Why? Well, in our case, one drop of true faith in God. And we inherit the throne, despite all our attacks on the king in the past. All the bits of robe that we've cut off. All the times we tried to push him off the throne or even murder him. And say, I'm ruling my life. If we have one drop of true faith in God and his son Jesus Christ, then we are forgiven. Why? Because the king has died in our place. Jesus didn't have to die in order to inherit the throne. He's perfectly righteous. He's part of the family of David. He didn't have to die. Why did he die? It is so that others would inherit the kingdom with him and be part of the royal family. He died to pay for their times that they've attempted to kill him, to put him to death, and so that they could go free. And more than that, that they could be citizens more than that, royal family of the kingdom. And so let us all joyfully share in the kingdom. By what? By trusting in God. By trusting in God and the forgiveness given in Jesus Christ. It's the only way to royalty. It's the only way for David to experience the throne. It's the only way for Jesus to get the throne. It's the only way for us to be royalty, to be part of God's kingdom. If you've never done it, Believe now before God kicks you off whatever little throne you think you're on and puts you in a deep cave for all eternity. You think that by sinning and being your own boss, you get out of the cave. It's not a shortcut. It's not a shortcut. It takes you into the depths of hell. Believe now before it is too late and then let us all wait in faith in the cave of this world that sometimes stinks like a sewer. Yes, this world stinks. The way people treat you, the outcome, the consequences of sin in this world, God's judgment on this world, it hurts. We forget sometimes we are in a cave. We should not be happy here. This is the world's toilet in many respects. We should not be content here, but we are called to wait. Yes, yes, we all want to get out of the toilet, in, the toilet cave into the fresh air and a peaceful land. But let us remember the quicker path. The quicker path is not by unbelief in God. It's not by unbelief in God. That's not a path out at all. It's into the eternal cave of the depths of hell. Let us remember that the true way out is by faith and faith alone in Christ and God the Father. And that means waiting and suffering, but not the suffering that Jesus went through, pales in comparison to any suffering that we go through. 
Any suffering we experience in the toilet cave is nothing compared to what David probably had to go through and what Jesus definitely went through. Let us remember that the true way out is by faith, but let us also remember that there is joy. There is joy for us while we wait in the cave. Why? Because we know our king is a legitimate king and his throne endures for all of eternity. His righteousness will continue forever. His love for us will continue forever. And what do we now have? We have a certain hope that we will be given a share in that kingdom. We will be given a share in that kingdom. We will have our own crown of righteousness given to us. And what does that crown bring? A share in the kingdom with exceeding joy and peace forever. Yes, we're called to be in the cave right now, but we will not be in the cave forever. This is such a short time in the cave in comparison to the time that we will spend on the throne. David spent some time in a cave, and then he was king of Israel. And it was much longer that he was king of Israel than when he was running around and trying to escape from Saul. Our time here is so short in comparison to eternity. So let us rejoice, even whilst we're in the cave and all the struggles with it and all the attacks of the enemy. Let us keep trusting in Jesus and know that we have a delightful inheritance. The boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Let us come to him in prayer now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God who acts righteously. And we thank you for giving us a legitimate and righteous king in Jesus Christ. And so his throne, we know, will endure for eternity. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for laying a hand on Christ's royal robes every time we sin. And we ask that you would help us to trust you to remove us from our cave in your timing and your way. And give us the Holy Spirit's strength to wait and endure the sufferings of this world as Christ did, but also to rejoice in the reward that is coming to us in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.